from downtown Milwaukee, welcome to Money Talk with Bob Landis. Each week, professional advisors from Landis and Company Investments discuss the latest financial developments, offering timely insight and long-term perspective. This is Money Talk for January 13th, 2023. Checking the calendar, the Bucks have a couple of home games this week with the Pacers and the Raptors. And the Packers, well, the Packers, they're home, probably watching the Bucks on TV. <laughs> and this Saturday, it's the Waukesha Jamboree. It's a week-long celebration of winter. Let's just get right to the Florida bashing. Two Floridians were arrested after one of them called 911 to get help with removing stuff from the house they were burglarizing. <laughs> How stupid could they be? Well, to answer that question, you also need to know they asked the cops for a ride to the airport. Having, a motorcycle, having been a motorcycle rider for over 50 years, I've been to Sturgis and Daytona in Florida numerous times. This next one can be filed under old news. According to a recent Harvard Medical School study, the number of organ donations and organ transplants goes up markedly during large motorcycle rallies. Ouch. Duh. Here's a little news from our technology desk. Amazon's Alexa will soon be able to speak to you in the voice of your grandmother. That would be a miracle since my grandma can't speak English. <laughs> President Biden can't seem to catch a break. It's reported that back in 2012, 11 years ago, he was a Marvel comic supervillain named Spectrum, and Spectrum's real name was Joe Biden. At the end of the comic book, there's a disclaimer that reads, not to be confused with Vice President Joe Biden. Well, I'm glad they cleared that up. <laughs> and finally, our silly headline of the week puts us back in Florida. Florida man dies after winning live cockroach eating contest. On the podcast today, we have Dave Sandstrom, Paige Radke, Joel Driesing, and wrapping up the week, here's Kyle Tedding. Well, thanks, Max. We can always count on Florida to give us a good start to the, uh, the weekly podcast here. Um, and uh, I think overall, it's been a great start to the year. You look at the NASDAQ up 4.8% this week, closing at 11,079. The S&P 500 up 104 points this week, closing at 39.99. That's up 2.7%. And the Dow up 2% this week, uh, this week, closing at 34.303 after adding 113 points Friday, 672 for the week. For the year, the NASDAQ beat, beat pretty badly last year, but up 5.9% for the year this year. The S&P 500 up 4.2, and the Dow up 3.5%. A quick look at stocks on the bond side, uh, worth pointing out the yield on the benchmark 10-year U.S. Treasury moving down, down 6 uh, 0.06%, closing at 3.51. And I think as importantly, you look at the difference between some of those longer-term, high-quality treasuries versus the real short-term treasuries. Uh, the 13-week or three-month T-bill now paying right around 4.5%, and so almost a full 100 basis point spread between those shorter-term bonds and those longer-term bonds. And Dave, it's this inversion uh, that we've been pointing to for a while as potentially indicative of recession. It seems almost inevitable at this point that a recession is uh, is in the cards. Everybody's talking about it. It seems to be the thing that um, is going to come. The timing, who knows? 
the magnitude seems to be not all that significant depending on who you ask. Um, but one of those things that we tend to look at is that inversion where the yield on short-term treasuries is higher, and in this case, significantly higher than the yield on those longer-term treasuries. And what that means in pretty basic English is that you are less willing to invest long-term, sorry, you're less willing to invest short-term, meaning you're demanding a little bit higher rate than you would be long-term, getting a little bit uh, lower rate on those long-term bonds. And of course, you know, I think the the real question on everyone's minds is, you know, if everybody's out there talking about recession, Jamie Dimon this week uh, in J.P. Morgan's earnings earnings release talking about recession, um, and, and the reason for it seems to be that the Fed's gone too far, you know, what what's it really mean for investors if it's the thing that everybody's already predicted? Well, it's Kyle, if you're asking me if it's if everybody gets on one side of the boat, if there's any problems with that, then I, I think you, you probably can figure out the answer. And it seems like the more sure... Uh, economists are about a, an exact outcome, the, the less accurate they become. Uh, now, that's not to say that, obviously, uh, a recession is off the table. We, we are certainly set up for it with um, the actions of the Federal Reserve, right? That's the, the whole point of this in raising rates is to slow down economic activity. Um, and obviously, they want to be successful in that to, to continue this push down on inflation. Uh, but one thing I think that it really points to is with what we've seen with rates coming up so drastically in the last year, I know it's been painful for bond owners over the last 12 months. It's something that we haven't seen really in a generation um, from a bond performance standpoint, and, and people have become gun-shy. But I think it's important to understand that going forward now, with those rates elevated, uh, as you pointed out, that now is a pretty good time to be a bond owner looking forward, um, and especially in some of the, you know, reaching out a little bit on the duration side of things, uh, taking advantage of some of these elevated rates and, and riding it out here. I, I think bonds are, are shaping up to be pretty good performers here over the, over the coming years. Yeah, I think important to point out that, you know, buying a 10-year treasury a year ago versus buying a 10-year treasury now, you're getting almost another 2% on your money compared to what you would have got before. Keep in mind, right now you're getting even more on short-term bonds the challenge is you buy a 10-year bond, you know what you're getting for the next 10 years. Uh, even if you can get paid more to buy three months a year, you're only getting paid that for three months or a year. And so I think that's the challenge with things like cash right now that look really attractive relative to where they've been. They look really attractive even relative to some longer-term high-quality options. The challenge is that if we get to an environment like that recessionary environment that we're talking about where potentially rates are going back down, your return over the next 10 years isn't going to look quite as attractive as it does for those first three months. And so I think it is a strong reminder that there is a reason why we're willing to put money out there a little bit further right now, even if the short-term rates look better. It's because we know what we're going to get now over the next three years, five years, 10 years. We're not strictly hoping that rates stay high because the reality is even the Fed is talking about rates will eventually be coming back down a little bit on the overnight. If inflation gets under control, it's sooner rather than later. If it takes a little while longer, maybe it's later this year, not earlier this year. But now we're talking about months or quarters. We're not talking about years. Um, and so I think the, the reality is I'm more excited about bonds because of what happened last year, not less. You know, Paige, I think the, the challenge in all this, of course, is 
that as we talk about recession, there's a lot of potential outcomes on the table for stocks and bonds alike. Um, you see it starting to pop up in, you know, in, in corners of the world that maybe we hadn't been talking about before. Um, bankruptcies back on the list of things to worry about. Layoffs back on the list of things to worry about. You know, what kind of stands out to you is some of the things you're looking for. And I guess more importantly, what stands out to you is some of the reasons why maybe there's a little bit of light here at the end. Yes, I think, you know, when we're looking at when a recession is going to happen, I think it's important to remind everyone that a recession is always on the horizon. Um, The question is, when will it happen and what's it going to take to get there? Um, And so, you know, one one index I was looking at today, they call it the misery index, where essentially it takes the it takes the inflation picture and adds that to the current unemployment numbers that has been steadily coming down over the course of the last year. And it's not because unemployment is going down or sorry, going up. It's because we're seeing those inflation numbers start to come down. At the same time, we've seen unemployment stay pretty steady. So despite the fact that we see these headlines about big layoffs here and there, they have been pretty isolated to the tech sector and the financial services sector. And those are two of the most interest rate sensitive areas when it comes to profits and funding. Um, And so really, those are sort of the first places that we see that start to take hold. And we haven't yet seen that spread to other areas of the economy. And in fact, we've seen people start coming back into the labor force. And so, you know, that's one thing that I'm keeping a pretty close eye on. Um, but, but just in general, of course, inflation continues to be the big driver. Um, the Federal Reserve will keep raising interest rates until they get it to a level that they deem appropriate. And so until that time comes, there's still going to be a lot of uncertainty out there. Uncertainty breeds volatility. And really, the best thing to do is hold tight, focus on the bigger picture, and not let the day-to-day moves really get to you. You know, and I'd point out too, Paige, we talk recession. We generally use really broad entire economy type recession talk. Uh, You know, we don't get into the weeds necessarily with individual sectors. And there's some fairly likely areas of the economy that will see recession. Housing maybe being on the front end of that. The mortgage rates have more than doubled. Uh, Now they come down a little bit. But, you know, you see certain sectors of the economy that look, well, that they could be facing some trouble. But when you look at other areas of the economy, you know, travel areas, uh, uh, service areas of uh, restaurants and, and hotels and, and entertainment that are still booming at this point. So we're seeing a little transition in some of those areas uh, and, and recession is certainly, certainly likely in some of the others. You know, tech seems to be one that's under pressure right now a little bit on the employment side, but a lot of areas of the economy that are still doing quite well. And Dave, I think we tend to have a bit of a recency bias when it comes to a recession. We look back in time and, you know, the last recession we had was COVID. Um, It was the shortest recession that we've ever had. But the one before that was the financial crisis. And we call it a great recession for a reason. The one before that was because of the dot-com bubble bursting. So we tend to think that that's how a recession is going to be and always will be. When the fact of the matter is, is those were very much, those were all event-driven recessions, whereas now it's looking like more of your run-of-the-mill, boring, cyclical, economic-based recession. And that's not something that you should necessarily be afraid of. It's a healthy, normal part of how markets function. And I think important to understand that market leadership, as we talk about a a slowing economy, as we talk about an economy that could go through a, a period of negative GDP growth, 
market leadership was unlikely to rely on the names we were talking about earlier to begin with because you tend not to see the thing that led last be the thing that leads next. And so technology names already were a thing where you started to go, well, yeah, there's a few of those names I really, really want, but we're going to be a little bit pickier now about making sure that um, the names we're investing in are high quality. They have stable earnings. In a lot of cases, they're reasonably priced. Um, You're still willing to pay up here and there, but you know, generally speaking, I'm more interested in a manufacturing renaissance that's happening here in the U.S. and some high-quality industrials that, you know, have really strong balance sheets. They don't have to go out and borrow at these higher rates. They can spend the $100 billion in cash they have sitting on their balance sheet. I'm more interested in some of these healthcare names that are coming up with innovative solutions for obesity, innovative solutions for things like Alzheimer's. Yeah, a lot of these are maybe small, uh, you know, from a a revenue perspective, small components of the overall picture, but it's one more dollar they're earning curing something that maybe we didn't cure before. And so, you know, I think if we're talking about what the next leg of this looks like, it's probably not relying on all those old tech names. And that said, you're still going to want a lot of exposure to technology stocks. It's one of the things about, in particular, U.S. stocks that I think is fairly unique is how significant of a role they play on the contribution to earnings, on the contribution to our economy overall. Um, But we're starting to broaden out what that looks like because the opportunities are new. And Kyle, think about what Paige was just talking about with the the layoffs at big technology companies. Well, you know, um, that's something that they're doing to to trim their their expenses, right? So they can maintain their profits. And a lot of the people who are being let go at some of those places are people who are going to plug into the industrial sector, into the healthcare sector. And, you know, with, with the IT skills that they have, the technology skills, the innovation skills that they had at some of those big tech giants, and maybe they're going to help propel those other companies. That's one of the things I've been reading more about is the number of uh, engineers, the number of, um, in particular, software engineers that are available now because of some of these layoffs. And it used to be that if you were one of the old guard businesses, you couldn't afford to hire a lot of the brightest because you had this overhead that just meant you couldn't pay what Silicon Valley could pay. But with these layoffs now and a lot of these people becoming more readily available maybe a little more willing to work for what some of these businesses are willing to pay, you're talking about some really bright people now that may enter some businesses that can benefit from the skills they have, whether it's going to some of the old car manufacturers and coming in and improving their processes, whether it's what we saw. that The example I was given was the meltdown we saw with Southwest over the holiday season because they've spent years not upgrading their internal software systems because it was just so expensive to do it. Well, now if you can bring in a couple of engineers to fix those problems for you at a more cost-effective manner, now anything's going to be more cost-effective than what they're going to end up having to pay out to all these people whose flights were canceled and the the wrecked goodwill. But I think your point is well-received. There's some meaningful opportunities now for businesses to take advantage of a labor pool that's going to have some really smart people in it who previously just wanted to work in tech. And back again to what Paige was pointing out, I mean, if, if the people getting laid off in big business, high tech, are hiring on at, you know, smaller companies, um, th- that's still keeping the labor supply up there and, and um, you know, getting back to traditional visions of recessions, 
I don't think we're going to be seeing the, the big layoffs widespread as we had before. Yeah, and I think that's the piece to me that as we talk about the ultimate impact to our investments, that's the piece to me that keeps me pretty optimistic about the magnitude, the duration of what a recession would look like if the Fed can't thread that thread that needle right now of soft landing. Everyone's betting they aren't going to, which to me suggests, yeah, maybe they're right. But also, if that's what we're all expecting, the impact to our investments maybe isn't what it used to be. Paige, to your point, this isn't the last recession. This is the current recession, if that's what we're dealing with. Um, And it means that the impact to our investments is going to look different. A reminder that we tend to look six months or so ahead for stocks. And so if the recession is somewhat shallow, somewhat short, by the time we've even announced it, stock market's probably already reflecting the way out. Joel, I think the the big one on everyone's mind this week from an economic perspective was the CPI report. Uh, clearly signs that uh, inflation continues to slow. Um, there's always a lot of nuance in that data, but I think worth pointing out that um, you know we, we continue to see the direction going the way we had hoped. So Kyle, the consumer price index, which is the biggest gauge of inflation, um, went negative. It actually declined from November to December. That's the first decrease in that on a monthly basis since July. Everybody's been saying that it's been since May of 20, but I actually looked and there was a very, it, it, it was reported as zero in July, but it was actually just a little bit under. Um, but so so that's significant. And then the the number that we mostly look at is the year-to-year number, and that was 6.5% inflation. Um, that's down from 7.1% in November. It's down from more than 9% in June. It's come down every month since June. Um, and that's a big deal. It's still way above, remember, the Fed's target long term is 2%. So we're still way above that. But it's showing things are going in the right direction. And as far as nuances, I think I read more articles about how best to measure inflation than the actual inflation report itself. Because you've got the CPI, which looks at 80,000 items. They take prices on 80,000 items every month to, to, to do that report. Um, and then the, the the report that the Fed favors is called the uh, the uh, personal consumption expenditure index, and that's um, there's a little variation on those. But then you can take out food and energy because they're volatile. You can take out shelter costs. You can take out healthcare costs. You can slice and dice it all sorts of different ways to find different ways to look at how inflation is going. But most of those slices and dices. Uh, show that, yeah, it's coming down. Yeah, so the Wall Street Journal uh, puts out a heat map of every one of those parts of the basket to look at, okay, what's the lowest, the highest contributors to CPI? It's interesting. The school lunches bucket was the piece that had increased at the fastest rate year over year. So I think one more reason why I'm happy that my kids usually take their lunch from the house <laughs> uh, instead of taking hot lunch at school. Um, but from a, an economic perspective, we continue to care about the absolute number for CPI for inflation, but it's the direction that continues to drive our outlook for where are we headed from here. And as long as we continue to get progress on that direction, the conversation will continue to revolve around the fact that the Fed is going to reach a point where they don't have to raise interest rates anymore. And so I think that's the key to inflation right now is we got to keep seeing 
it go from north of nine back down to maybe two and a half or three by the end of this year. And and yet there's a degree to which, I, I, you know, I guess we want inflation not to go down real fast because we want consumers to be scared enough not to spend as much as they want to because that's what's really going to, you know, slow down the economy and bring inflation down, um, you know, more long term. And beyond the inflation number, it was a fairly quiet week for economic indicators. I think a, a big one, I mean, obviously we look at the employment numbers which came out this week, but the other big one on my mind uh, is always how consumers are feeling about the world and consumer sentiment came out today. Right, yeah. And, and again, you know, Paige talked about the misery index. Um, uh, people are, are looking at their, their wallets and they're seeing that their pay is still pretty good, that their their job prospects are still pretty good, um, and they're feeling that there's less inflation. So they're feeling a little bit uh, cockier, not maybe cocky, but but um, they are. I mean, they're, they're, they're feeling a little more confident um, than they were a couple of months ago about spending money. Uh, and, and that's something that we have to keep watching. That's sort of a a harbinger of, of uh, consumer spending, which drives 70% of the economy. And then we had other news this week from the Fed on um, credit card borrowing, and credit card debt continues to go up. And that's another sign, usually, that um, consumers are confident of spending and then being able to pay those bills uh, after they spend the money. And it's now at a record level, and it's it's up uh, 9% um, since, the, uh, the, since the pandemic started. And Joel, I think that's where, you know, you really look at that going hand in hand, in my opinion, with, with the unemployment numbers. I mean, I think that that strong confidence in the consumer spending numbers is tied uh, tightly to the fact that people are getting uh, a constant, consistent paycheck. Nobody's worried about, do I get enough hours at, at, at work? I'm getting a raise, um, you know, getting overtime. And people, the American public uh, consumer spends based on that confidence that, yeah, I'm going to get another paycheck next week. And and the feds come right out and said that they understand that they need that unemployment number to, to start going up before they are going to feel confident that what they've done is, is working. Yeah, Dave, um, I think it's a sense that we need to feel more pain from these rate increases, and maybe we haven't felt them yet. And actually, I mean, just to be clear, the consumer sentiment numbers are near historic lows, but they're starting to come up. And it's mostly because of inflation that and the fear of inflation and the uncertainty of inflation that they're uh, as low as they have been. I think all signs that the economy is, for all intents and purposes, on fairly solid footing, and for all the talk that's out there about recession, for all the, I think, obvious indicators that the economy continues to slow, there's also some pretty significant support for an economy that, while it might slow a little bit year over year, isn't in free fall the way we've seen in some prior experiences. And so, you know, I think the key is, you know, the, the balance we've relied on and now finally being able to, to account for a larger portion of return coming from fixed income, coming from bonds, will be the piece that gets us through whatever that short stretch looks like uh, of slow growth and get us to the environment that we know is on the other side of this where we can get back to some pretty strong returns for stocks. Kyle, before we uh, sign off, I want to just do a little quick shout out to the potential for international stocks. We, we don't talk too much about them from a, a return standpoint, but they're off to a very, very strong start to this year. Uh, I know we're on a on a record uh, long outperformance of U.S. stocks over international. It's been pushing 15 years. 
highly unusual. But with the maybe tech taking a breather and the reopening in China and maybe some of the, some weakness in the dollar on the horizon, uh, some it's an area I think of investing that we can't completely ignore. I think uh, that's something to keep your eyes on uh, as we get through this year. Yeah, and of course, we've been, I think, intentionally underweight given all the challenges that exist outside the U.S., those challenges aren't going to disappear tomorrow. And so remember that I think the window for that opportunity is a little more open than it is in some other areas, um, but absolutely a place we should continue to keep an eye on and continue to potentially allocate some resource. Well, as always, we enjoy doing the program for you, uh, and we will talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to Money Talk with Bob Landis. If you have a financial question you want answered on next week's show, Email it to moneytalk at landis.com. To keep informed throughout the week, visit our Money Talk page at landis.com. <laughs>